Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. I'm Joshua Holo, your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast and our conversation with Chen Mazig. Chen Mazig is an award-winning Israeli author, writer, and speaker. He was named as one of the Algeminer's top 100 people positively influencing Jewish life, a top 50 online pro-Israel influencer, and a top 50 LGBTQ plus influencer. In 2022, the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis chose Chen to be its Portrait and Courage Award laureate. His first book, The Wrong Kind of Jew, was released in 2022. Chen, welcome, and thank you for joining us on the College Commons podcast. Hello, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. You begin your book, The Wrong Kind of Jew, by saying that you don't fit people's expectations of what Jewish is. Explain what you mean. Yeah, I start with really expressing how surprised I was when I moved to America uh, about 10 years ago, and I lived in Seattle, and what being Jewish meant for a lot of the people that I met there was very foreign to me. Um, And what people expected me to be was not really who I am. When people say Jewish, they usually mean um, Sarah Silverman, or they're speaking about Jewish food. So they mean gefilte fish and bagels. And for me personally, I didn't grow up with um, this culture or, or this food. While I did try it, it wasn't part of my Jewish upbringing, and I feel very strongly about my Jewish identity. So it was quite a surprise for me. Uh, and I find that um, surprisingly, what being Jewish is has a very narrow meaning, and it's been preserved. And every time I spoke up, I find that people from within our community and outside of, of our community had an issue with me sharing the stories of my family, my identity, and trying to expand what being Jewish means. In uh, your title and introduction, you refer to this feeling of being, obviously, in quotes, the the wrong kind of Jew. I want to pick up on your response to being called that, which really caught my attention. You write, quote, and sometimes I get it. I'm bad at calling out anti-Semitism when it's politically useful. When the right is happy with me, I call out bigotry among their ranks. And when I have finally proven I'm liberal enough, I put a spotlight on how progressive movements exclude Jews, close quote. I think I understand what you mean by calling out both the left and the right, and and we'll have more opportunity to talk about that. What do you mean when you point out or admit that you don't call out anti-Semitism enough? I was referring to those litmus tests that I'm constantly have to face within progressive movement and on the right as well. I feel like I'm definitely more progressive and I'm more to the left politically. Uh, That's just my political ideology. Um, But I'm constantly being judged because I don't fit neatly into what being a brown, gay, Jewish lefty is. And you would often expect a person in the intersection of my identities to have very specific views on Israel, on Zionism. I I, I don't fit into the pet narratives that people have um, about Israel, about the Middle East, and about Jews as a whole. Being Jewish is a central part of my identity, Um, just like being gay is and and being Mizrahi uh, and being a Zionist. And I call out uh, racism and hatred and and LGBTQ phobia wherever I see it. 
But when I call out anti-Semitism, people would expect me only to call out what's white supremacists and Republicans, uh, which I think there's a real issue with people that are conservatives and their opinions and their views on Jews, uh, specifically in the West. Some of those uh, politicians, some of those voices have some opinions and some uh, political ideologies that I can get behind and I do call out. But I also find that progressives and voices that are on the left that would otherwise support every part of my identity and will speak up for uh, bigotry and, and hatred that other parts of my identity are facing would be mum or, or would do very little to address anti-Semitism and hatred of Jews that is on the rise in America. And it's a big part of, of what I'm trying to advocate for. And I think that as, as we are not able as a community um, to use one unified voice to call out hatred and bigotry towards us, no matter where it comes from, we have to depoliticize anti-Semitism. And that's something that I'm trying to do in my work. Also, based on my family's history, uh, my family came to Israel from Iraq and Tunisia. The sort of anti-Semitism that they faced, the, the people that burned their villages were not white supremacists, they weren't Nazis. I'm speaking about brown people attacking my family that are also brown. And that doesn't fit into the narrative that people in the progressive movement in America know of or, or are able to comprehend, I find, a lot of the times. Uh, and that is a big challenge uh, for me when I speak about these issues. The reason that it's so it's so heartbreaking or, or so uh, challenging for me is because I speak up for, not just for myself, I speak up for my family. Out of my my mom's uh, 12 brothers and sisters and my dad's 16 brothers and sisters, I'm the only one that is able to express himself in English in the way that I can. None of them speak English well enough to, to speak about these issues and the, and the stories of my family. So I feel like I have a, a big responsibility for my family to speak up for them uh, where they are being ignored or, you know, in worse, even silenced. I'm touched by what you're saying. Uh, as an American political participant, I, I think that we've made progress in the Jewish community in naming and acknowledging anti-Semitism both on the left and the right. But I think we've made less clear headway in disentangling the strands of our identity in a way that you described about yourself and your family. There's a strong tradition in American Ashkenazi culture of not perceiving ourselves as white. And yet the whiteness of the Ashkenazi experience is so central and a counterpoint to your experience in Israel and here in America, as you just described. Can you weigh in on your impressions of not just Ashkenazi non-whiteness, but the complexity of Jewishness as a category far beyond intersectionality. Jewishness itself has all kinds of streams and counter streams in it. Yeah, that's uh, such an important point. And I think that the core of all of it is the confusion around what being Jewish is. And our people's experience in the diaspora, we had one of the longest diaspora of any people in the world. And we were out of, of our homeland and we weren't allowed to go back. And every time we try to go back, we were exiled again. 
Um, and we forgot that Judaism is not a religion in the same way that uh, Christianity is a religion and, and Islam is a religion. It has a different elements to it. And I think that's really where uh, where you see the FBI report in America about um, uh, violence against Jews or, or anti-Semitism um, being the, the largest uh, form of religious hatred in America, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, wait, but it's not really religious form because they're targeting Jews not only based on our religion, even if we convert, we're still Jews. Um, and it's because Judaism is not just a religion, it's also an ethnicity. And regardless of if a person practiced Jewish religion, we know that they're still Jewish because it's a heritage and it's history and it's a culture. And I think the people who paint Judaism as only a religion are trying to deny the ways that Jews are being prosecuted. Anti-Semitism is about eradication, and they don't want Jews to continue existing. And it doesn't matter if, if you're a Black Jew or if you're a Jew of color or if you're a Jew with um, pale skin that just has peahs and, and, uh, and is um, ultra-Orthodox and is visibly Jewish. Uh, if they find out that you're Jewish, you would face this hatred. And I think that's what a lot of people in America fail to realize in the conversation about race, that first of all, not everything is about race. Racism is terrible and it's something that we all must stand up to and fight. And I fight racism in our societies. But with that being said, anti-Semitism is just very different. Uh, to see Jews only as a faith uh, is meant to, to hurt our connection to one another as people uh, and our connection to Israel. And just to finalize, it's a, you know, Jews are a religion, a heritage, a culture, an ethnicity, and we are also a people. And we have always been all of those things at once, and we always will be. I want to pick up on this tone and quality of your book in which you express profound Israeli pride and commitment, and also profound conscience to critique Israel when it deserves to be criticized. And from the American Jewish perspective, I want to ask this question. How well or poorly does your particular form of Israeli pride map onto what we here in the United States might call liberal Zionism? I think it's a bit of an oxymoron because Zionism for me is a liberal cause. And I think that Zionism is about liberation of the Jewish land. It means that Jews have the right to live in our ancient homeland, just like the Armenians have a right to live in Armenia, their ancient homeland. Uh, and just like the Kurds have a right to live in Kurdistan. But I think that we um, we have done such a good job with, with Zionism and with Israel and re reclaiming our homeland and our indigenous homeland where we started and reviving our language. And that's, we did such a great job that it's very hard for people to see us um, as what we are, as an indigenous religious minority. My love to the country is very, um, I, I don't doubt it. And even when I have criticism, I speak up and I never have to think twice uh, if people would see that as um as something that I shouldn't do. But I, I had an interview a few months ago with the pro-Israel lobby with APAC. They wanted to interview me for a podcast that they did. And they asked me, why, how, how can you be so critical of Israel uh, and still say that you love it so much? My answer is that I love my mom so much and I'm very critical of her. Uh, I voice some of this criticism in the book as well, that she calls me too much. And I, uh, every day, three times a day, it's, it's <laughs> um, and, and I still love her. And I, and I don't feel like my love to her is, is ever at, at risk or, or that she might think that I don't love her if I have criticism to her. And it's the same with, with Israel. It's my country. I know that I have nowhere else. And I know what happened to my grandparents uh, when we were stateless. And I know that this is my home. I feel like my connection to Israel is so strong 
And I feel like my connection is not just religious as a, as a secular Jew, as someone that is still keep kosher as much as I can. And I, it's very important for me to participate in Jewish identity because that's my culture. Um, but I see my culture uh, and, and the religious aspect of it as, as manifestation of my connection to my homeland. You know, when we sing for the angels of peace, the spirits that we invite to our homes, or when we face Jerusalem, uh, when we pray, or in Sukkot, when we wave four species of, of uh, uh, vegetables to six directions of the wind, that's all very indigenous practices that indigenous people, uh, native people do all over. So for me, my Jewish religious rituals that I participate in are just a manifestation of my connection to, to Israel. Um, the idea itself of Zionism is older than the word itself. And, and I think that there's so many different definitions and labels that have been put on it um, that people have forgot that this is a very legitimate claim to um, to our homeland and, and for Jews to be free. And that's why my love to Israel is where it's at. And I can be very critical of its government and I can be very critical of its policies and I can support and I think everyone should support a Palestinian state because Palestinians are people as well that have legitimate claims for a, a national homeland for themselves. And you can support Zionism while we reject their rights for, uh, for a homeland. With all of this in mind, I can still, you know, I still love my country and I still love my people. Um, and I lead myself, everything I do is really coming out of love. Even this book, it was, while it was very hard to write it, it, it was very much um, a work of love uh, and, uh, a, and a plea for my people from a place of love. I want to improve our story. And I think we're all writing it now. So it was just a small part of our Jewish story that I was, um, I hope that I contributed to. The College Commons podcast belongs to HUC Connect, the online platform for continuing education from the Hebrew Union College. HUC Connect includes webinars, syllabi for community learning, and masterclasses for HUC alumni with interviews, expert panels, and classroom materials on topics ranging from the arts to civil society, Israel, and much more. Check us out at huc.edu backslash hucconnect. Now, back to our interview. You make the point in your book about distinguishing Arabic-speaking Jews, both from Arab non-Jews and from one another, zooming out in the way we talk in general. Do you think that there's a problem in using umbrella terms like Mizrahi or Sephardi that elide or risk stereotyping very different cultures and languages? Or do you think that those umbrella terms are justified because of their political usefulness? Uh, why not both? <laughs> I think that it's both uh, <laughs> it's both important to use umbrella terms um, because that gives people political power. And uh, when you have um, when you have similar experience, you can come together as a as a union. And I'm taking this, of course, I'm borrowing it from the LGBTQ community. We know that gays, lesbians, bisexuals, uh, transgender are, have very different experiences and i know that some voices are advocating to separate them um but i think you know i can be gay and i can be um part of the lgbtq community i can be queer as well uh, the same way that i can be jewish and mizrahi 
Um, I think also the term Jewish is, a, is an umbrella term that we all use to, to share an experience that is very similar. But within those groups, you understand that there's subgroups and there's a difference between Iraqi Jews and, and Moroccan Jews. And, and even within Iraqi Jews, if you ask my grandmother that she was from Baghdad, she would tell you that um, Jews from Basra, a different um, city in Iraq, uh, are much less cultured than she is uh, as a Baghdadian Jew. And she really looks down at them, uh, which is funny. They're both Iraqi Jews and they share a very, <laughs> almost the same culture. But even within those uh, communities, you have this hierarchy and punching down. But I do think that while um, Iraqi Jews, or, or, or as they would probably consider themselves, as my grandmother considers herself, a Babylonian Jew, a very similar uh, story to the one that Jews in the Maghreb had, because all of them lived under the Islamic rule, and they all were oppressed in the same way and forced out in the same way. And they speak some sort of Arabic because of the, uh, the Arab imperialism of the Middle East. Uh, which which is another thing that is very hard for us to comprehend that um, imperialism doesn't just come in white. Uh, and there's different colors of, of imperialism and colonialism. And uh, the result of Arab imperialism is the Middle East today. And I can see that from, from my from my Iraqi mother and from my Tunisian father, how their their experience in the diaspora is so similar. Uh, and they were oppressed because of the same powers. They were both expelled from the 40s all the way to the 50s from their land. Their story was never recognized. Their land was never retreated to them. There was never any form of compensation uh, for what happened to them. And, you know, the, the amount that was taken from Jews from the Middle East and North Africa is equal to $300 billion. Uh, the land that was taken from them is equal to five times the, the size of the state of Israel, according to a special committee that former uh, Minister of Justice in, in Canada, Erwin Kotler, was leading uh, that researched those figures and found all of this. And yet they came to Israel and they had the same experience of been still oppressed minority, although they are majority. So all of this, I think, really brings together their story and, and helps uh, move this narrative ahead and advocate for those communities to be recognized uh, and, and be heard. And if I was fighting only for Iraqi and Tunisian Jews, because my mom is Iraqi and my dad is Tunisian, uh, I would miss um, a whole other group of people that have so much alike with me. And if I only fought for Mizrahi Jews and not only for Ashkenazi Jews and Mizrahi Jews when it comes to anti-Semitism, I would miss a whole lot of people that could support me in the same way when I fight for LGBTQ Jews and when I fight against racism. So all of this is really different intersections of identities and, and different powers that are at play and that we need to use whatever tools we have and, and come together as communities to, to tackle them uh, and it doesn't negate from any other cause and, and the importance of any other community. This book is premised largely on the need to inform an English-speaking audience about the true cultural diversity of Israel and the epistry of world Judaism. At the same time, I think it's fair to say that many American Jews and many, certainly many scholars of Jewish studies do in fact have a sense or at least an awareness of the fact of Mizrahi Jews in Israel and outside of Israel as well. And I think many of us even know of their cultural and political influence in Israel, where I think many of us remain woefully ignorant and widely so is about the experience of un-Ashkenazic communities during the Holocaust. 
tell us if you would in brief what you think we need to know about that. I think that we need to recognize that Mizrahi Jews uh, were oppressed in their respective countries. Uh, and during the Holocaust, my grandparents from my, mother, my mother's side faced the Farhud, uh, those two days of violent attacks against the Jews of Iraq uh, took place uh, during Shavuot on June 1st and June 2nd, 1941, years before the establishment of the State of Israel. And hundreds of Jews were killed, uh, thousands were injured, um, Jewish shops and stores and, and synagogues were shattered and burned. And during those two days that were incited by Nazi agents that came to Germany and worked with their Arab leaders uh, in Iraq, the Iraqi Jewish community realized that this is going to be the end of their time as Dimi, which means a protected minority in Iraq, and that they would have to start planning and a way out. The same but different happened in North Africa with the French colonialism in, in North Africa, where um, when the Vichy regime was a Nazi regime in France, affected also those uh, colonies in North Africa. And my grandparents had to work in forced labor camp in Tunisia. Um, and my grandmother had to serve Nazi agents. Um, and about 5,000 Jews uh, were sent to death camps from North Africa. My grandfather was supposed to be sent to a death camp in Europe. And at the last moment, he was saved and the war was over. But those experiences are very similar. And and of course, there's different levels of violence that, that Jews in, in Europe face in the one in the Middle East, but the long arm of the Nazis, they were trying to reach every Jew around the world, and it wasn't just exclusive to Europe. And this approach did not just end there. Um, you know, in 1945, the Tunisian government decided to um, ban any Jewish associ association in the, in, in the country. They completely destroyed the Jewish quarter in Tunis, and they imposed rules on, on Jews that after the Vichy regime even left Tunisia, they continued with the oppression of the Jewish community. The same happened in Iraq. In the 60s, there were public execution of Jews. In the 50s, the law allowing Iraqi Jews to give up their citizenship and move to Israel was passed in the Iraqi government. So all of this is just to share some of how the years following the Holocaust that affected those Jewish communities uh, have contributed to anti-Semitism in all of those uh, Muslim countries that I don't think any of those countries have really done reckoning. I know that Morocco was more open to having a conversation about that, but it's a far cry from genuine uh, engagement uh, with their past. And I think that until they're, they'll be able to do that, we won't have a genuine peace between the people in the Middle East. So much of the emergence of the Israeli Mizrahi identity in Israeli politics is associated with the campaign of Menachem Begin in the late 70s and early 80s, and the shift in Israeli politics. If I guess your age correctly, that was probably the political generation of your parents. And I wonder what the family story of that moment is in Israeli politics and your family life. Mm, it's that moment that continues to uh, affect them until today. And I do explore that in, in the book. It is the, as you guessed correctly, my my parents' age. Uh, my parents' uh, experience where they were for a long time uh, excluded from specific jobs in Israel, even in the Israeli army. My, my father told me how he wanted to get into one of the better units to be a pilot or to do something with computers. Uh, and he ended up being a, a, a truck driver, although he did not want to do that. And then after that, later on, he got a job as a truck driver. So all of 
since the army time, it was really leading him to doing something very specific. And then, you know, after that, he was trying to to get some better education or to look into getting other jobs. But to get a job in specific associations, you you were you had to be a member of labor. And labor didn't really accept it, Nanish Kanazim. And if, only if you had this red passport, you could get a job in 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 uh, professions that were, you know, more desirable by Israelis. And I guess with Menachem Begin and uh, Likud uh, coming into power, Mizrahi Jews for the first time felt equal. And it's, it's interesting that Mizrahi in Israel, um, the reason that my book is also in English and I haven't translated it to Hebrew is because I feel like Mizrahi are not ready to have this conversation in Israel. I don't know if they would ever be ready. But when you speak to them about what their political needs are, what they want to do, they would say that they they want to be equal and they want to see the whole country together. They don't want to feel like Mizrahim are separate people or to be categorized separately. They want unity. Um, and I think that's what Menachem Begin was offering for the first time. He was speaking to Mizrahim, but not only Mizrahim, to all Jews in Israel as one people and saw us as um, as one family. And that what was so appealing for, uh, for Mizrahim and after he took power in the 60s, my father told me how he got a job in the aerospace industry because it wasn't just excluded exclusive for Mapai uh, and labor members. It was also for Likud members. Um, and he was able to really make more success in, in, in his life. And I think the most important thing was for them to be treated equally as, a, as people. They felt like they were always looked down upon. And I think that's why it's so important for my dad that he's a very strong uh, Likud supporter to continue uh, supporting them while I have much disagreement. Our Friday dinners, we, we shout a lot, um, but uh, but with love. And I think that for my dad and, and for my mom, um, that meant everything that they were seeing. My my mom worked in, in Banca Pauline, which was the Mapai Bank. And after Likud won, she felt like she got many more opportunities to move upwards, Zrachim was much more open. And I think it remains until today that they are such a stunt supporters of Likud and, and uh, right-wing parties because they feel like those are the parties that represent them. I think that the left can, in Israel, that's where their blind spot is when they can't see how Zrachim works with it and remembering this history that was passed on from my parents' generation to us and realize that you know this community can be an, a massive force to bring a left-wing and liberal government to Israel, but it's just a matter of seeing them the same way that Menachem Begin saw them. And while the situation is much better today, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of work to be done to improve the representation of Mizrahi, but also in Israel to not look down at Middle Eastern culture and, and accept and celebrate it. Of course, it's with Mizrahi communities, it's not looked down upon and it's something that we partake in and, and Arabic and, and Middle Eastern food is something that we celebrate, but within Ashkenazi left circles that I was part of in when I lived in Israel, it's a wide brush, but I feel like left-wing Ashkenazi Jews in Israel were always looking down upon our culture. I think that once they would be able to see us as one people and as equals, it would make much many more Mizrahim vote uh, liberal and left because they would feel like they are being respected uh, as brothers and sisters. In your book, you describe serious cases of being shut down in American or Western European contexts uh, and having even unsavory political conflict at times. But despite that challenge, you've spent a lot of time in Western Europe and the United States 
And I wonder if there's something about our democratic culture that has inspired you as an Israeli activist. And on the other hand, have you seen aspects of Israeli democratic culture provide inspiration to those of us in Europe or the United States? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're really uh, hitting the nail on the head here. And that goes also to the reason why my book is in English. Living in America and living in Western Europe, I found words to describe my experience when I was reading about critical race theory or when I read about um, political activists fighting for equality and justice in America. Uh, I felt like those words that they were using and the um, and the experiences that they were uh, sharing uh, was something that I felt that I could really connect to and see myself in. When Obama won, I still remember how I was in tears because I thought, wow, this man that that was part of a community that was oppressed and still oppressed for so long was able to make it. And I was just, I remember thinking to myself, I wish one day we'll have a Mizrahi prime minister in Israel that will have someone from my community being represented because it's so important to see yourself in the faces and in the uh, in the experiences of your leaders. And while I can see the Jewish part within the leaders like Netanyahu and, and Lapid and, and Bennett, I still don't see the Mizrahi part in it. And uh, and that's something that is very missing for me. Uh, and seeing Obama and seeing the political um, activism in America and the reckoning around racism in America just recently with Black Lives Matter really inspired me and gave me the tools and the and the words to describe my experience to fight for a better future for my people and goes back to the reason that I'm doing all of this. I'm not doing it because I I want Mizrahim to get anything more or less than equality. And I want our people to be stronger. And I do think that if we are seeing each other as equal humans and we and we listen to one another and we expand the Jewish story, you know, the, the Jewish story and our experiences is not just a pool that has just room for a few swimmers. There's room for everyone. And the more we expand the Jewish story, the better it becomes, the better we are seen as people in America. And when they see that Jews are diverse people, that we come in every color and that we are a tribe and that... Mizrahi Jews exist in Israel, and it would just make Jewish experience and the Jewish story so much better. So I'm in the business of of improving the Jewish story and and expanding it and and making it better for all of us. And I truly, truly hope that people would read my book and and specifically Americans that love Israel so much and they they say that they love our food and they love our music and they love the warmth and the directness of the people and everything they're speaking about that they love about Israel is very much Mizrahi. I see that young Jews are are becoming more distant from from Israel and from Zionism, and I think that it's because they aren't familiar with the Mizrahi uh, and how big of a part we play in Israel, and they become more desensitized to Jewish identity, and they favor um, uh, Arabs in the Middle East rather than favoring their Jewish brothers and sisters that are also of Arab countries uh, and have this experience. I think just to recognize Mizrahim and seeing us will just uh, improve the Jewish story, but also will improve the world we live in and will make much more advance towards peace, which we all want. Chen Mazig, thank you very much for joining us on the College Commons podcast. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure was all mine. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And check out HUC Connect, compelling conversations at the forefront of Jewish learning. 
For more information about all that HUC Connect has to offer, visit huc.edu slash huc connect.